All right, good morning once again. Oh, I want to, uh, forgot to mention something this morning on announcements. Uh, Dr. Randy McKinnon will be joining us next week from Cedarville University, so just put that in your notebook uh, for next week. It's, he's always a phenomenal Bible teacher, so enjoy having him, but he's coming next week. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible there in front of you, it's in the New Testament on page 148, 148 in the pew Bible. We're going to read from verses 1 through 7 this morning just to maintain a little bit of our context, but we're going to really hone in on verses 4 and 5 this morning and make that the focus of most of our time. And I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, Christmas According to the Apostle Paul. Christmas According to the Apostle Paul. This is the the time of year that we get the unique opportunity to dwell solely upon the birth of Jesus Christ and remind ourselves of the importance of the season that we're in. Most often than not, if you're young, or perhaps still in your teen years, Christmas is sort of a benchmark in time for you. You look forward to those presents. Maybe you get to see your grandparents over the holidays. Uh, Maybe you get to travel out of state to go see some family, and you look forward to those presents some more. And, And then you start to do the countdown until next Christmas. And so the Christmas season is often a reference point in time for us. For other of us, others of us that are just a, a wee bit older, Christmas means uh, another year that sort of flashed before our eyes. Another year our children and grandchildren have gotten older. Perhaps we've watched our parents age another year, or maybe this might be the first Christmas without somebody that you love. And so Christmas is often a reference point in time for both the young and the old, but sometimes for different reasons. But the first Christmas, specifically the birth of Jesus Christ, was also a reference point in time for God. It's the time in which the infinite clothed himself with the finite. It's the time that God bridged the gap between deity and humanity. It's the time that God would send a Savior who would be born to save people from their sins. And it was a time that God would announce the good news of great joy, of a God who would redeem us with his own beloved son, as he had promised long, long ago. And so as we're going to see in our text today, God had fixed Christmas as an important point in time that is just as crucial to your and my salvation as the cross. So I want us to read our text this morning so that we can have it on our hearts and minds as we look at this very, very important portion of Scripture. And I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's holy word. We're in Galatians chapter 4. We're beginning in verse 1. And God's inspired and inerrant word says this. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We thank you for it, Lord. We just pray now that it would nourish our souls this morning. That would inflame our hearts if they have grown cold, Lord. That we would look at this text and see the beauty of Christmas once again. Father, help us to study your word and to know your word and write it on the tablet of our hearts. We just thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we typically almost exclusively think about the death and resurrection of Christ. We think about his substitutionary death, his atonement for sin by the shedding of his blood on the cross. Because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus Christ, by his sin-bearing substitutionary death on the cross, he propitiated or he satisfied the righteous anger of God toward us, and he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he took it out of the way, having nailed it on the cross, as Colossians 2.14 tells us. He redeemed us out of the slave market of sin and Satan, and he reconciled us to God through himself by the blood of his cross. And so the cross is of utmost and critical importance to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. One might say that it is the heart of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, says that for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But then after he was crucified on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead so that the resurrection of Jesus Christ would be a vindication and a validation of the sufficiency of his death on that cross. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead is that which bears witness and testimony to the triumph and the victory of Christ's death on the cross for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the amen of God Himself from heaven. That the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and His atonement for sins was fully sufficient. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said, it is finished, the resurrection of of his body, it was as if God was saying to him, I am satisfied. And so now, at this very moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand, at the throne of the majesty on high, in the heavens, and he is there as your and my great high priest, always living, always making intercession for us, and he is the only mediator between us and God. But when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order to have a full and robust view, 
In order to have a complete view of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we must also think about the life of Christ. Because you and I are saved just as much as the, by the life of Jesus Christ as we are the death of Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus Christ is just not incidental, but it is fundamental and it is absolutely necessary to the gospel. In other words, you can't have Easter without Christmas and everything in between. Because if the life of Christ wasn't of any consequence, then God could have just sent Jesus down from heaven on a good Friday and said, let's just get this done on a weekend deal. Go down there, die for the sins of your people, and that should do it. I tell you, absolutely not. Jesus not only had to die for our sins, but Jesus Christ had to live for our righteousness. The life of Christ and the death of Christ is not an either or, but it is a both and. His life of perfect obedience, which theologians call the active obedience of Christ, is just as necessary for our salvation as his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross, which theologians call the passive obedience of Christ. Because not only do we impute or we transfer our sins squarely upon the broad shoulders of Jesus Christ, not only did he bore our sins on his body on the cross, as 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, but... Because he had lived a perfect and sinless life, because he had lived in full obedience to the law of God, because he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, his perfect righteousness is then imputed or transferred to us. This is the great exchange. In theological terms, this is what we would call a double imputation. He gets the very worst of me, namely all of my sin, and I get the very best of him, namely all of his righteousness. This is what caused the prophet Isaiah to burst forth in praise and adoration to God when he wrote this beautiful imagery that we have in Isaiah 61.10. If you want something to commit to memory, this is a good text. He said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. This is what Jeremiah 23 says, that his name by which he will be called is the Lord, our righteousness. And all of this transpires, this great exchange takes place in your life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when you trust in Jesus Christ, God places your sins upon him and he removes them as far away from you as the east is from the west. He casts them into the sea of forgetfulness and he never goes fishing for them. And then God imputes to you or counts you as righteous before his eyes so that if you would die right now, this very moment, regardless of the week that you and I just had, 
If you were to die right now, you would have all the righteousness you would ever need to enter into the gates of heaven, namely the righteousness that was secured by the sinless, obedient life of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is good news. This is great news. This is why we celebrate Christmas, because this is the gospel. And this is what makes the season of Christmas so important to us as Christians. The life of Jesus Christ is equally as important as the death of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate to us here in Galatians 4. This is Christmas according to the Apostle Paul. Now, up to this point in Galatians, Paul's been making the case and the argument that salvation is not gained by man's merit or his own righteousness through the works of the law, but that it solely rests and is based on God's sovereign grace working through faith in Jesus Christ. He says as much in Galatians 3.16 when he said that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that the law was plan A and that Jesus had to come on the scene and that was plan B, but nothing could be further from the truth. Romans 5.20 tells us that the law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, the purpose of the law was to show us and point to us a need for the Savior. Galatians 3.24 says that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. To put it another way, the law of God was like a mirror, and it showed us that our faces were dirty. And when the law of God was measured against our lives, we were found wanting. But God did not leave us without hope. He didn't leave us with this impossible task of trying to obtain our own righteousness through the works of the law, because if you stumbled at just one point, you become guilty of the whole thing. And so this should cause our hearts to be overjoyed and just full of praise to God in the fact that He would send His dearly beloved Son to do that which we could never do on our own. This is what Christmas is about, and this is what Paul is saying to us in Galatians chapter 4. So let's look at our text a little bit more closely and notice in verse 4 there with me when it says, but when the fullness of the time came. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the Son of God came at the exact moment in time that God had planned and preordained. All the right pieces of the puzzle were in place, if you will. God had set the table. He had opened it up, put the leaves in the extra dining room table there. He had placed all of the china, polished all the silverware. Every single thing was ready. The world stage was set, ready for the grand and glorious entry of His only begotten Son. It's like the greatest epic movie you could imagine with all the plot lines and the various characters, sequence events, all blending perfectly and seamlessly into this one miraculous divine event. Every and each detail had culminated into this one exact point in time that Christ could have not been born any earlier or any later. The first Christmas came right on time and God orchestrated all of the events, whether political religious, cultural, so that he could enter humanity at the right time. Politically, Rome was in power during the time of the birth of Christ. 
The world had, uh, there was a, a series of well-built roads built by the Romans to help people travel, which would help the gospel spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It was the time called the Pax Romana, P-A-X, the Peace of Rome, because Rome had a strong central government. Religiously, there was a famine in the land. The failures of paganism and even Judaism, along with the mess, uh, revived the messianic hopes, it characterized much of the ancient world. Synagogues had popped up during that intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament so that the populace could be catechized or trained in the law. And there was a spiritual hunger that had come, so much so that many at the time were looking for the consolation of Israel, much like Simeon in Luke chapter 2. Culturally, Alexander the Great had long died before the arrival of Christ, but the Koine Greek or the common Greek that he left behind would be the language of all of the people across many national and regional barriers so that when the New Testament was written, it was written in that Koine Greek and be able to be read and distributed by people of all different types of nations. And think about the prophecy of Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Micah lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And God could have easily chosen a faithful virgin who lived in Bethlehem and a just man who was in the line and lineage of David. And we might think to ourselves, well, that's no big deal. That's just a coincidence. But God chose Mary and Joseph, who lived in Nazareth, some 80 miles away. And they didn't just go to Bethlehem on some business venture or to visit some family. Those of you who have had wives pregnant that far along, and you want to tell them, hey, we're going to walk 80 miles of this city, do you know what she would say to you? You're out of your mind. But God moved in the heart of the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, to issue a decree of a worldwide census that would make everyone go to their own town to register. You don't think for a moment the Lord has the world under his control? All of this was done so that his son would be born in the exact place at the exact time, all where his providential hand had determined. It was the fullness of of time. But then we see in our text that God sent forth his son. Now, there's three things that we can take away from this phrase, God sent forth his son. First of all, we must take note that God is the initiator of salvation of mankind, and therefore it strips us of all of our pride. God sent forth his son. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the first cause of our salvation. It is an action of God, not man, that brings the salvation of souls. God sent forth his son on a mission, and that mission would find its apex or its high point in the sin-bearing, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. Secondly, when it says that God sent forth his son, we must take note that the son existed before he was sent. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he is not a created being. He existed before his birth in Bethlehem. And in fact, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus makes this incredible statement that happened even before the fall of man in the garden when he says this, I was watching Satan 
fall from heaven like lightning. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 goes on and tells us that the Word became flesh. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him, that is Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. His Sonship is eternal. And it was not obtained at his birth. And thirdly, when it says that God sent forth his son, we must recognize his divinity. We just read John 1.1 as one of the texts of Jesus' preexistent, but it also applies to his divinity in that the word was God. John chapter 20, 28, as Thomas has seen the risen Christ, he cries out, my Lord and my God. That's one that Jehovah's Witnesses have a fury over trying to figure out. It's clear as a bell. In Acts chapter 20 and 28, Paul exhorts the elders at Ephesus. He says, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the flock, or excuse me, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who is the he in that purchase? It's referring back to God, but the he is clearly referring to Jesus who bought the church with his own blood. And Paul clearly has no problem with the divinity of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We must recognize that Jesus was fully divine because Scripture demands it, that God sent forth His Son. Then then notice the next two phrases in our text. It says, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul wants us to know that Jesus Christ entered the human race. He took on flesh. And this speaks to Christ's humanity. This smacks square upside the head the heresy of docetism. Docetism taught that Jesus Christ only appeared to have a body and didn't really take on human flesh, but he was just an apparition floating around. But it says he took on flesh. He began to live as you and I lived here on the earth. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He had a real body, and so that when he was crucified, he really bled and he really died. Do you remember what he told Thomas in John chapter 20? Do you remember what Jesus had told him to do before he cried out, my Lord and my God? He says this to Thomas. He says, reach in here with your finger and see my hands and reach in here with your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus really bled and really died. And so the big question is this. Why was it necessary for him to become flesh? Why is Paul making such a big deal about him being born of a woman? Well, one of the reasons is that he had to be a substitute sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 answers this question. He says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Listen to this verse. For assuredly, 
He does not give help to angels, but he gives helps to the descendant of Abraham. Now that's a fascinating statement there in and of itself. Because Jesus became a man and not an angel. God was more concerned with saving men and not with saving angels. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be make, made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. A priest was a mediator between man and God. And a priest's job was to bring sacrifices to God on behalf of men. And so in order for Jesus to fulfill that priestly role for us and bring the substitutionary sacrifice of himself as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was necessary for him to become flesh. Another reason is so that he might sympathize with us. Hebrews 4.15 would go on to say, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Beloved, we don't have a great, great high priest who's cold or unsympathetic. Jesus is never indifferent to our sufferings, our temptation, our pain, our afflictions. But even more than that, he is not indifferent to our greatest need, and that is for someone to take away the penalty of the curse of the law for us. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of law, having become a curse for us. And so his sacrifice on the cross was a sacrifice of his own perfect, sinless flesh that he bore the curse and the death for sin that we deserved. And in that death, God's wrath was satisfied and appeased. Why else is it necessary for him to become flesh? For representative obedience. Where Adam would fail, Jesus would be victorious. Where Adam would stumble, Jesus would be perfect. Romans 5.18 says that, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, that's Adam, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life, to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Jesus had to be born of a woman and become a man so that he would be our representative and obey in our place. But then Paul adds in our text that he was born under the law. What does it mean, born under the law? This means that Jesus was born with a duty to obey that law. He was accountable to obey the law. Jesus was born a Jew, and therefore he had to obey God's law in its entirety. He was circumcised on the eighth day as the law required. He followed all the Ten Commandments perfectly. He went to Jerusalem regularly to celebrate and keep the feast. And he kept the Passover even as he celebrated it with his disciples just before his death. Everything that the law of God required, Jesus lived and fulfilled in perfect obedience to it. And by being under that law, he is now bound and responsible to obey the law. 
This is why the life of Christ is just as important as the death of Christ. This is why Christmas is equally as important as Easter. Otherwise, there'd be no need for Bethlehem. There'd be no need for him to live 30 years in obscurity or or have three years of public ministry. And he could have just appeared on the world stage, gone straight to the cost, had been raised from the dead and gone right back into heaven. And if that's all it was that necessary, it could have been like a weekend project. No, it was so that he would be under that law and obey the very law that you and I break day in and day out again and again. And his obedience to that law would secure our righteousness that you and I so desperately need. And it is that righteousness that it is credited to your account when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to what end did Jesus Christ do this? For you and me. Why would he ever undergo the humility of the incarnation? Why would he endure such hostility by sinners against himself? Why would he actively obey every jot and tittle of the law? We see that answer in verse 5 when we go from the circumstances to the purpose of Jesus' coming. This explains why God sent forth his son, why he was born of a woman, why he was born under law. Verse 5 says, So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. So Paul says here that he might redeem. And this word redeemed in this text is a word that means to literally buy out or buy back. And it was used to speak of slaves whose freedom was purchased and meant to rescue or release. It was to set free by paying a price. What did he set us free from? Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were all slaves to sin. But now Jesus has rescued us from that slavery. And what was the price? What cost? Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, Jesus brought about a spiritual exodus from slavery to Satan, to whom we had all been slaves all of our lives, as Hebrew 2.15 tells us, and he lifted off the yoke of slavery, and he transferred us to the one whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the cost of that transaction was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. His timely arrival into the world, his eternal deity, his true humanity, and his perfect obedience to the law of God qualified him to the uttermost to be the perfect sacrifice and rescue those who were under the law. But it's not as if that was enough. If our elder brother coming to rescue us from our sinful ways wasn't enough, Paul goes on at these incredibly beautiful eight words. He says this in our text, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And you need to know something about adoption in Roman law and Roman life. When a Roman emperor would adopt someone not related to them by blood. They did so in order to give them some sort of office or some authority. To put it more bluntly, an adopted son was giving all the legal recognition as those naturally born within the family. You get the same name, 
You get the same standing, you get the same inheritance, and you would get the same rights as a natural-born son. And so, Jesus Christ not only provides for our redemption, but He secures our adoption. And so, instead of being children of disobedience, we are now children of God. Instead of being, by nature, children of wrath, you are now the son or daughter of your Heavenly Father. And beloved, this breaks the often fatalistic view sometimes of family by origin that so many people have of themselves. Meaning, people say, you don't know who my parents are. You don't know what my dad was like or what my mom was like. And so this is, this is who I am. This is all I'll ever be. But God says, no. Because when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you get a new father. And you get a new family. Some of you have had struggles with your fathers. Some of you have had struggles with your mothers. Some of you have had conflicts with your family. But God says to you, you are now mine. You are in my family. And if you want to be a part of any family, this is the one you want to be a part of. The infinite, holy God of the universe, the creator who has power from on high to create things out of nothing, He who is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only wise sovereign, the one who judges all of mankind, the one who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands, the one who has marked the heavens by the span, he has calculated the dust of the earth by its measured, he has weighed mountains and a balance in the hills and a pair of scales. He says to you and I that when you put your faith and all of your trust into his only precious beloved son, that he will not only remove the guilt and shame of sin, because of his sin-bearing death on the cross. He will not only impute to you the righteousness that his son rightfully earned in his sinless, obedient life by perfectly obeying the law, but now he will adopt you into his holy family and give you the highest privilege of intimate fellowship with him. You are now his beloved son. You are now his beloved daughter. And he eagerly delights to give you all of the fullness of himself to you. What wonder is this? (laughs) That you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. I mean, no wonder Apostle John exclaimed in 1 John 3, See how great the love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Beloved, you get all of your sins cleansed. You get the righteousness of Christ and you get the loving embrace of your heavenly father as his adopted son or daughter by putting your faith in him. This is the wonder of Christmas and the life of Christ. Jeremiah Burroughs said, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men perish eternally, that he would send his Son to take our nature upon him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein God shows his love 
that it pleased the Father to break his Son and to pour out his blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. Oh, what wonderful, powerful, mighty, drawing, efficacious meditation this should be for us. I want to ask you, how in the world should you celebrate Christmas like everybody else in the world? How should you see this season and this time but to give back praise to God for sending his Son for us? Do you have any awe and wonder in your heart for so great a Savior as Jesus Christ? This is why we sing, Oh, come, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. This is what God has done for you. He has sent forth his Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that he would redeem us from that law and adopt you as a son or daughter of his kingdom. What praise should we give back to God? Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have gone through many Christmas seasons without care or concern for what you have done through Christ. We've just let it be a repetitious time of year for us, just maybe sometimes hoping to get it all over with. But Lord, let us look upon Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, of all that he would endure from sinners so that he might sacrifice his life for us on the cross, take away our sins, give us his righteousness, and adopt us as your son or your daughter. Father, let us dwell on the magnificent love of God, the love that you have extended to us this season in Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.